Hey, hey, hello. This is Chris Olson, and welcome to Shoutbox. On today's program, we're going to start talking about gender and the wide and complex system that makes up the gender spectrum. And due to that complexity, I really wanted to bring on a guest that could speak to that with a great deal of authority. And I'd love to welcome Greg Storms, Director of Youth Services from the Center in Halstead. Now, Greg's background includes anthropology as well as LGBTQ studies, two master's degrees, and is presently pursuing doctorate with a specialty in sociological anthropology and LGBTQ studies. Greg, welcome to the program. Thank you for having me. I'm excited. So, uh, in starting off talking about gender, maybe we start at the very top, what the definition of gender is, which in talking about this before the program, you said it's a complex question. It really is. And a lot of people hear the word gender and they think it's the most simple thing that we can define, right? Man versus woman. And it's not. I usually try to define gender in very abstract ways. Um, because there are so many ways for an individual to identify in terms of their gender. Um, the ways that I look at it are the ways that we incorporate conceptions of masculinity and femininity into our existence, or the lack thereof, which is important for many people. And those are all socially determined, right? And so they vary depending on who we're talking to, what culture we're in, what time period we're in. The sort of cues that relate to gender really very considerably. And so for many people, the word gender cues up very clear images in their head. For someone like me who lives in a world where gender is so expansive, it is a very complex image that pops up for me. Today in the United States and many parts of the world, we talk about the LGBTQ communities, right? Lesbian, gay, bisexual, transgender, queer, and questioning. And we bring together the transgender community with the lesbian, gay, and bisexual communities for very important purposes we might talk about in a little bit. But I do want to make sure everyone understands that there is a distinction there. Sexual orientation, as we define it today, is based on attraction. It could be physical attraction. It could be romantic or emotional attraction. But it's based on how we feel about an, another person. But with gender, we're thinking about how people identify in terms of themselves relating to their expressions or internal identifications of masculinity, femininity, or again, the rejection of either. Today, we talk about sexual orientation using gender as a defining factor. So if I say that I am bisexual, that means that I am someone who is attracted to either romantically or physically to someone of the same gender or of different genders. So the gender of the person that I'm attracted to matters. When we're talking about gender, that attraction doesn't play a role, right? Because we're talking about how we see ourselves, how we feel about ourselves, not in relation to someone else per se, but in terms of what we think about us. You know, one of the things I associate with gender is the elements I embrace as far as my presentation, sort of the, the coded traits that I feel comfortable in, in, in how I interact with others and interact with the world, how I want to be seen, as well as how I feel I should be seen. Absolutely. But it goes beyond that, too. Okay. So you bring up the role of presentation, and that's important when we're talking about gender, because we have different codes that are socially designated and either socially approved or not approved in terms of how society expects a person to comport themselves based on either what sex they were assigned at birth or how they are perceived physically in terms of their body. Right. Right? That We could be talking about clothing. We could be talking about use of makeup. We could be talking about 
style of walk. Those all matter in terms of how people perceive us and the sort of interactions we have with those people, right? And they could be positive or they could be negative interactions. And very often they can be negative if you are not matching the presentation that is expected of you based on social norms. It goes beyond that too, because gender is not just about presentation. It's about identification internally too. So mentally, emotionally, spiritually. So a person can very easily identify in very feminine terms, but have been assigned male at birth and still wear clothing that in society we typically uh, associate with men. And there's a lot of reasons for that. It could be that the person uh, identifies in very fluid ways in terms of their gender. I'm a perfect example of this. I identify as gender fluid. You'll usually see me in clothes that were designed and intended for men for a few reasons. One, I feel comfortable in them. It's part of my identity. But also, I'm a six foot four person, and it's really hard to find clothing uh, in my size that was intended for, for women. Um, it's possible, but it's not easy. Right. Um, and it tends to be expensive. Another major concern for many people in terms of their gender presentation is safety. So if you are someone who identifies as transgender or non-binary and you are wearing clothes or presenting in ways that go against social norms, that can create a space where your safety is in in threat. Violence against transgender people, especially trans women of color, is so high. These are safety concerns that trans people or non-binary people really have to take into account when they're out in the world. That's really sad. It's really unfortunate. One of the reasons why I do this podcast is how important it is to me that people are living their their truth Mm -hmm. and finding out who they really are and, and, and living that to the fullest. But that's a lot easier said than done. It is. And this is something that I work with on a daily basis. I work in a youth space for primarily LGBT youth, many, many of whom are transgender or gender nonconforming, non-binary. For a lot of those individuals, our space is the first and possibly only space where they can safely present in ways that feel authentic to them. And it's really important to us that we have that space for them, but it's also part of my job and part of my personal ethics to try to make the world a safer place in general, to have these sort of conversations, to educate the public as much as I can on the humanity of trans people. Right. Right. And the fact that not talking about trans people, not accepting trans people or actively engaging in virulent discourse about transgender people creates an insanely unsafe space, unsafe world for these young people to grow up in. That's one of the reasons we have such high rates of suicide ideation, suicide attempts, um, homelessness among tra- trans youth in particular, but LGBT youth all around. Yeah, We see high rates of substance use and so on because it's hard to deal with this stuff. It's hard to live in a world where you're told that you are wrong just for being who you are. And so for me, it's vitally important that we get out in the world, have these conversations, try to educate the public, and try to create a better world for these young people to grow up in. I'm so happy that's such you know a core mission for the center, and, and you know, and, and to spread the word. We talked right. a little bit about sort of the normative, and maybe that's a good time to talk yeah. a little bit about that. Yeah. yeah, absolutely. So we, you know, we exist in a society that has norms, as we've alluded to already, about what sort of not just behavior is acceptable, but what sort of identities are acceptable. We have a word heteronormativity that is often used to describe the social conditions in which heterosexuality is considered normal and anything that is not heterosexual is considered abnormal or wrong. And we have social structures built around that very concept that privilege certain sorts of identities, heterosexuality in this case, in a lot of ways that 
create a lot of difficulties for anyone who's not heterosexual. Similarly, we have another word, cis-normativity, C-I-S normativity, that refers to the a social condition in which being cisgender is considered normal and acceptable and not being cisgender is abnormal and wrong. And cisgender is kind of the counterpart to transgender, to put it okay. crassly. Sure. It refers to an individual who identifies today in terms of their gender the same way that was assigned to them at birth. Gotcha. So, okay. for example, if someone was born and they were assigned female at birth and they identify as a woman later in life, that would be cisgender. How expansive is the trans spectrum as yeah. an example? So. It's growing every day yeah. <laughs> um, in wonderful, beautiful ways. And also, it's not. So the reason I say that is because the language that we have for describing individual experience is growing. We have new words to describe how individuals see themselves in terms of their gender and also their sexual orientation. That's growing every day. But those experiences are not necessarily new. The language around it is. But in the past, you might have only had a few words that were commonly used to describe the way that you saw yourself, whether that word was transgender, which itself is a relatively new word. Uh, in the past, words that were more commonly used were transsexual or transvestite, which we typically don't use anymore because they have a sort of negative connotation associated right. with them. But today, we have so many different ways to identify, whether it's agender for somebody who doesn't particularly identify with masculinity or femininity in any way. You could have someone who identifies as bigender, who identifies both as male and female simultaneously, possibly in different rates or different equivalencies at different times, or possibly not. We have the word queer which is often used in a gendered sense to describe someone who really is trying to break down the categories of gender that exist, but still work within that sort of concept of gender existing. Okay. Right? And that word has changed in meaning a lot over time and, ha and today has multiple meanings. I do want to touch on this a little bit because I think it's important. Queer can be this sort of anti-normative identity and that was, in my experience, very common even a decade ago in that sort of sense. And it still is today. Absolutely still is. But it is also this sort of umbrella term that is used to describe anyone who doesn't fit the traditional categories or labels of lesbian, gay, bisexual, or transgender. It can be a, a pretty useful shortcut compared to the acronym LGBT or, or LGBTQ because when you use acronyms, you're no matter what, going to leave out some identity, right. right? There's always a letter that won't be there. And for those of us who really want to be as inclusive as possible, having a word like queer to describe an entire community of people who experience anti-LGBTQ plus oppression, that's a good way of having a shortcut for it. Otherwise, I'll be talking all day long because as, as we're mentioning, there are so many different ways that people are identifying now. Yeah. It's right, always right. adding. The other thing I want to talk about really quickly with regard to queer is its history. Queer, for many people of a particular generation, older individuals, for people who are, who are currently living in certain areas of the country where being out as LGBTQ is not as safe, or even in the city. I've experienced this here in Chicago often. The word queer is used as a slur. Historically, that was a very common term that was used against uh, LGBT people. And so in my interactions with older folks, I am very conscious to try not to use the word queer as much as I can, because I understand that they came out in a time where that was used against them in very hateful ways. 
and potentially very violent ways. But in the 80s, that word started to become reclaimed for various political reasons. In the 80s was an era of a greater visibility of LGBT people, mm-hmm. particularly because of the AIDS epidemic. There were some other reasons too, but especially the AIDS epidemic. We lived in a nation that was ignoring our deaths en masse. We had a government that very overtly did not listen to us, let us die. Particularly gay and bi men, but we had some amazing queer women allies in the fight with us. Some amazing straight people too. But especially gay and bi men were losing their friends, brothers, family daily, right? And that sort of trauma really helped promote the rise of an active, vibrant movement against homophobia and against the ignorance around sexual health and HIV. And because of that history, a sort of more radical approach to politics started to rise up. And, you know, this is coming out of the 70s, too. Sure. Right? Right. And the reclamation of the word queer became a really powerful symbol of our community to say, we're not letting you have this power over us anymore. Right? We're taking back this word. We're going to use it to self-identify. And in doing so, we're taking some of that hate that you have and transforming it into power. And so that sort of history with the word queer, I think, is really important thinking forward in time. Because in the 90s, that word gets claimed by academia to start thinking about worldview or theoretical perspective that we call the queer theory now. That helped us start to, at least academically, break down the understanding between gender, sexuality, and what I always in air quotes say as biological sex or sex assigned at birth. I put those air quotes there because even biological sex is not purely biological. It's determined by social factors that we commonly, communally determine as acceptable factors in determining someone's identity. Uh, Note, this is another episode coming up, maybe. (laughs) Yeah, yeah. That's a long conversation. It's one of my favorite things to talk about with people. I do a lot of trainings on this, and I spend a lot of time on biological sex or sex assigned at birth, because as an anthropologist with a strong biology training, it's fun to talk about. But this sort of theoretical perspective really started to take rise in the 90s. Right. And in the 2000s, throughout the 90s and into the 2000s, it became, in many ways, second nature for a lot of people of a younger generation. Like, they were learning these lessons that biological sex, sexual orientation, and gender are not the same thing, and that they are very complex, and there's a lot of ways that these all exist in diverse ways throughout the world. And so that sort of language, that more expansive language around these topics, created a space where words like queer became possible to describe individual experience in new ways. And it also opened up a space where people were thinking about gender and sexual orientation in more fluid ways. It wasn't just the binaries of gay or straight or even man or woman. We started to understand that because of this complexity, there are more ways that individuals can identify. Jumping forward to today, One of the things I see so often, especially with teenagers, is the many, many, many different ways that they identify both in terms of sexual orientation and gender. And those ways are so very often fluid that it's not fixed to a singular identity, but rather that the the social boundaries that existed to define an individual's experience that still exists today, but definitely existed in the past, those are breaking down. And so there's new language and new ways to conceptualize our individual selves. 
And young people are taking that up. Like, they're really thinking about this a lot in ways that I I could not have imagined at 13. That's what, you know, I think that's one of the really interesting factors going on, though, is that there's this groundswell of acceptance, number one, mm-hmm. that, hey, I can talk about this, I can, I can you know, build on this. And, you know, it's building on all of this work, you know, over the past 20, 30, 40, 50 years, yeah. you know, to uh, evolve something very, very new that is accepting, is inclusive, and is not a big deal. Right. And that last part, <laughs> I think, is, is one of the single biggest parts. That's the world I strive for, where this, we don't have to even think about this, right? It's just people are who they are. And there is no coming out experience. That That is a world that I dream of. It's where nobody has to have a coming out experience because everybody is who they who they are. You, you touched on a couple of really interesting things, too, that I, I wanted to dig a little deeper into. While it is about self-empowerment and, and empowerment of you know a younger generation right now, there is overall, I, I feel, a greater level of acceptance and exploration and security to some degree, you know, space space to think, space to move, yes. you know, new language, as you had mentioned. But I also feel that, that it's uh, a rejection of the previous generation or previous generations and just how they've made these firm, hard boxes that you have to fit in. How did that even happen in the first place? I mean, this the, the idea of, of this a broader gender has been around for thousands and thousands of years. Right. How do we get to this point where, where we were so rigid as a society? Oh, that's a very deep question. Yeah. <laughs> well, maybe we could talk um, yeah. yeah, no, let's talk about it, yeah. though, because I think it's a valuable thing to, to think about. Um, I want to start out that conversation, though, with noting that we're talking about this greater expansiveness that exists in terms of gender for younger generations and sexual orientation too. But I don't want us to get in the mindset that everything's good. We're seeing some of the highest rates of violence against trans people to date. And part of that is because we have new reporting mechanisms that are accurately depicting anti-trans violence as anti-trans violence, that the, the, the victims were not misgendered, for example. Right. So part of that is definitely part of the equation. But we also now live in a society where it's becoming increasingly acceptable to be outwardly homophobic and transphobic, right. Right? Uh, to be outwardly racist. I also don't want to leave listeners thinking that this is an equal opportunity openness uh, for this expansive of gender okay. for everybody equally. Other aspects of identity do play a role in this too. Different racial and ethnic backgrounds will have different cultural expectations and permissiveness of um, these sort of conversations and understandings of gender and sexual orientation. I would say even more importantly, socioeconomic status and class play a huge role in this as well, and religion as well. Yeah, yeah. And this is not to say that particular communities are more homophobic or transphobic than others. It's just to say that there is, I mean, here in Chicago, the city itself can be very open to understanding difference. There's a lot of problems in Chicago as well right. um, that I won't spend time here talking about, but <laughs> I could go on forever. But even comparing Chicago to the suburbs, we see vast differences between the experiences of trans kids, for example. Chicago public schools is really growing in terms of their competence with working with LGBT students that I'm not seeing in every suburb. And even within CPS here, it's that varies as well. Even just a few miles difference can make a huge impact on how gender is understood and accepted. Uh, that being said, going back to your original question, yeah. I am not one to often say that technology is a key factor in social change and the way that society changes, but it is. And the fact that we have had the internet for as long as we've had 
um, and that social media does exist in ways that reshape our ability to communicate with one another and to learn from one another, that has made an important distinction in terms of how people can express themselves with regard to how they identify themselves, yeah. right? Um, the sort of public persona that they can create for themselves. In the past, you may have had some individuals who identify in non-normative ways, but they didn't have a social space to express that or to even really conceptualize it because they weren't meeting other people like them and being able to build off that intellectually, right? They were not able to see someone who is going through similar life experiences and were able to say, oh, well, maybe this is something I should look at more about myself. Maybe this is actually who I am, and I just didn't have the words or language for it. You know, I grew up in a time when the internet was up and going, right? Yeah. And the internet was the way that I met other LGBT people first. And I'm going to age myself here, but in AOL chat rooms and yeah. the like. When we're talking about the importance of the internet as a, this medium for meeting other people who are like you, you're no longer alone. You're no no longer alone. And yeah. the, the distinction between, you know, when I came out with AOL chat rooms and the rise of Facebook and other social media sites created this different experience for younger folks, too, where not only were you going to this chat room where you weren't sure who was on the other side, but you have these sort of more reliable profiles about a person's lived experience that's more documented in social media sites like Facebook. And so that even gives a more human element, the person on the other side of the computer, right? That they are a person in the right. chat room. Like it could be anybody on the other side. I don't know what they're going through, but we're able to have this conversation and I'm able to hear my fears and my wishes reflected in somebody else. And today, even online, you can do that, but you actually know that person. You know that is a real person, and you can see that they have a life behind them that is documented online because that's what we're all doing. We're documenting everything online. When that first contact is made, I would imagine that's fairly electric. Oh, it is. <laughs> and it would have absolutely terrified my mother had she known. Yeah. Um, it was every mother's worst fear at that time, getting into a chat room and talking with someone you don't know yeah. and talking about things that were related to sex, right? And in some ways, the anonymity is what, what you know... It, that's exactly what allowed it. It, yeah. it was a safe safe space for me because I could never meet this person. Yeah. They were, you know, living across the country or right. possibly across the world, right? But there was this knowledge that there was someone out there like me. That's something that didn't necessarily exist prior. And so, again, I'm not one to really put a lot of emphasis anymore on the role of the internet. But I do think in this case, it was a major game changer because you had this more expansive connection to people who didn't have as much visibility prior and still don't. We still suffer from these same sort of concerns. We're seeing greater visibility of trans individuals in media, of LGB people as well, and positive representations too that does matter because there were representations prior. It's just they were usually killers or they died in the end. But now we see people living happy lives who are also happen to be lesbian, gay, bisexual, transgender, and those positive images really, really matter. Having that image as well as those real-life connections really make it possible for people to understand themselves better in new ways and to grow as individuals from there. Not being an anthropologist nor pursuing <laughs> my doctorate in that, this is purely just a conjecture, but it, it does feel so much uh, power has everything to do with putting people in the boxes. But I, I think that there there is a lot of power lost. Oh, right, absolutely. And everything is about power. Everything is political. That being said, power is differentially distributed within societies in different ways. And so one 
great example that I often think about is in you know very pre-Stonewall, pre-20th century United States and England as well, there was a greater social acceptance of sexual flu- fluidity based on class. So if you were part of the working class or working poor, you, there was a greater, a larger breadth of acceptance for different sorts of sexual behavior. Identity might not have been tied to that in the same way, and certain sort of practices would have been viewed differently. But for example, if you were two men having sex together and one was viewed as either more masculine or sexually dominant in that case, they often would get a pass. Also within higher class circumstances or the aristocracy, sexual fluidity was more accepted as well. It wasn't necessarily talked about but it was allowed in a way that wasn't permitted in a more middle-class venue. And that's something we still see today in a lot of ways as well. And it's because there's certain values and norms that we attach to particular social classes that help define those classes and those identities. And there's a certain flexibility in in other uh, populations that is built into the system as well. You know, that's something that I often like to think about is these norms that we have in society We think about them as being equally distributed across the board, but again, as we mentioned before, they're not, right? There is this sort of complexity that is built into the system as well that allows for a flexibility and fluidity to exist, depending on context. In today's society, you've got someone who wanting to be make a, make a safer space, wanting to make their workplace safer, who who may not be be as knowledgeable in this. What are what are some you know guides or suggestions that you know I mean LGBTQ people are facing things every day. How how can someone make that a, a more inclusive and, and warm space? There are a lot of recommendations I can give here. I'll try to keep it as short and sweet sure. as possible. Yeah, yeah. The first thing is we as we've been talking about we live in a computer age where you can find lots of people as well as well as a lot of information very easily. Do some research. It's always nice to be able to talk to someone who identifies as any part of a marginalized community to learn from them, but it's also not the marginalized person's responsibility to educate, especially since we have such easy access to information nowadays. So just do a little bit of research, get to know some of the major concerns that LGBT people face. Again, higher rates of violence, continued violence. It's not something in the past. Higher rates of substance use and self-harm because we're living in a society that says that we're wrong and that we are abnormal and unnatural, that we have shootings at LGBT bars killing mass amounts of people. And these are the sort of things that are always on our minds. So for someone who wants to be an ally, learn these sort of things and keep them in mind because when you hear an LGBT person get up on their soapbox and rant, there's a reason for that, right? We are afraid for our safety and for our lives and that of our youth. Understand that there is discrimination and oppression built into our legal system. In many areas of the country, I can be fired for being bisexual. It's very easy and very legal in many areas to refuse housing to someone because they're transgender. These are things that straight cisgender people don't often have to think about. That is part of our daily experience. So the learning is the first one. The second one that I always recommend, and it's a very concrete example that can be difficult for people to to start enacting, but it becomes second nature afterwards, is when we introduce ourselves, especially in, in large groups, introduce ourselves with our pronouns. So one thing that I often do is when, I ha- when I'm meeting a group and I'm doing a training on LGBT 101 stuff, for example, I'll say, hi, my name is Greg. I use they, them pronouns. And I'm the director of youth services at Center in Halstead. And 
I fit it in there in a way that people hear it, they under, they know that it's said, but it's also just part of the flow, right? I'm not focusing on it so much because it will stand out in ways that might put some people off. And that's something that I, as an individual, as an educator, don't want to do, right? I want to lift people up as much as I can. And we make that a standard practice. I'll introduce myself with my pronouns and we'll go around and every person introduce themselves with their pronouns as well. This becomes especially important when cisgender people use their pronouns. So if a woman says, hi, my name is Sally, and I use she, her pronouns, that automatically creates a safer space for transgender or non-binary individuals to feel that they can outwardly identify using the pronouns that they use and as transgender or non-binary. When you are trans or non-binary or gender non-conforming, it can be very scary to disclose that information when it could be important for a lot of reasons, yeah, right? Yeah. And so when you know that you have an ally in the room that is willing to share their identity and their pronouns, that means that I feel more comfortable doing so too. If people really want to become allies to the LGBT communities, I also recommend going through ally trainings because there are a lot of aspects to being an ally that people who self-identify as allies don't necessarily realize they're doing wrong. Well, let me use an example. There are many, many pride flags that exist. The rainbow flag for the overall LGBT community, the bisexual pride flag, trans pride flag, genderqueer, and many, many others. There's also one created for the ally community. To me, and to many people I've had conversations with, that very existence of an ally flag goes against the values of being an ally because it's bringing a spotlight onto you as an individual helping a marginalized community rather than focusing on that marginalized community itself. And so that's one example of the ways that allies might be trying to do good work, but doing it in a way that is counterproductive. Another way that I often see is people who self-identify as allies getting out in conversations and speaking over LGBT people. It's a tricky situation. I fully understand this because as parts of marginalized groups, we often say that we cannot always be the ones that are speaking for ourselves, that we do need allies to speak out for us as well. When you have someone who has the lived experience of marginalization, able and willing and wanting to talk, we need to have that voice heard first. And then simple things like promoting and supporting legislation that is useful and helpful to LGBT people. What I would love to finally see in a federal ENDA, Employment Non-Discrimination Act, to protect individuals in terms of employment and housing from discrimination. Or even small-scale things like having a gender sexuality or a gay-straight alliance at a school system. Or making sure the schools have a place for transgender youth to use a bathroom that yeah. corresponds to their gender identity and that they're allowed to without discrimination. I right. just read another story of a, I believe, an assistant principal. I could be wrong on that, but I believe an assistant principal that stopped a young trans man from using the boys' restroom and told him to, um, he needs to use a urinal to prove that he should be in that bathroom, which is abusive behavior. Yeah, it's heartbreaking. Abusive. And so having advocates in school systems and public spaces to promote these changes is a great way to be an ally as well. And just volunteering at your local LGBT centers if you have one or organizations like PFLAG, uh, Parents, Friends, and Families of Lesbians and Gays, uh, or similar groups can be a great way to give back. That's, you know, fantastic information. Uh, is there anything else that, that you want to share? I guess the one thing I want to leave on is something I've been 
saying repeatedly, but I want to make yeah. sure this message gets across. Um, I'm very thankful for the time that we live in. You know, there is a sort of greater acceptance um, space for people to to just exist in the world, but the structural forms of violence that have existed in the past still exist today. In some ways, I see them intensifying. It with greater visibility comes the possibility for greater targeting. I want us all to come together to just it's gonna sound very cheesy of me and I'm a cheesy personality. <laughs> um, <laughs> but I just want to live in a world where this doesn't matter anymore, right? And to get there, we have to educate each other, we have to support each other, and we have to create a space where people can just be. Yeah. And I hope that we can all come together and do that. Greg, you know, thank you so much for all this wonderful information. I, I, you know, I, I know we only scratch the surface on some of these topics, but I think this is a great start. I hope to have you back on the show at some point. But thank you for thank you for joining us today. And thank you for having this conversation. It's you know to me it's very important. So I'm very thankful it's, it's happening. I love it. Yeah, you know, and, and you know, uh, keep on doing the great work in Center and Halstead, and I'm sure we'll talk again soon. Will do. Thank you. Thank you to Greg Storms for joining us today on Shoutbox. To learn more about Greg's work at the Center on Halstead, or to learn more about the gender spectrum in general, or even just to explore the many programs offered to the LGBTQ community, visit centeronhalstead.org. To learn more about our program, visit kaiharding.com shoutbox, and feel free to ask us questions or shoot me an email at shoutbox at kaiharding.com. Today's program was recorded by Philip Bonduring at BAM Studios in Chicago, and it was edited and mixed by Sven at Blue Box Studio. Our theme music was written and performed by Melody Jane Wachtel of the band, This Is a Stick Up. Thank you so much for joining us, and have a lovely week. <laughs>